Great. A question to start with. When do we normally ask for things? When do we normally ask for things? Uh, Christmas, perhaps? Birthdays? When we need something, we might ask for it, like uh, asking for directions when we're lost in a place that we don't know very well. When we pray, often we're asking for things, aren't we? We may ask God for help or strength or healing and many, many other things. And let's remember that Jesus said, ask and you will receive. And this passage that we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 12 begins with people asking for something. You can see in verse 38, who is doing the asking and what they're asking for. So let me read it again for us. So Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. If we read this verse on its own and we ignore the rest of the chapter, then it sounds quite reasonable, doesn't it? Perhaps even something positive. They call Jesus teacher or rabbi. So it sounds like they're being respectful towards him. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But why? Are they wanting a sign? Are they admitting, perhaps, that they need help? We could read this and think that they're asking Jesus for some kind of evidence or proof about who he claims to be. And given, given who Jesus is, asking for a sign uh, could seem quite appropriate, especially when we have lots of other examples in the Bible of people asking for a sign. So we might be familiar with the story of Gideon, for example. Gideon lived a very long time ago in the time of the judges. So that was after God had led his people into the promised land through Moses and and Joshua. And we find this story of Gideon in the book of Judges, chapter 6, where God speaks to him through an angel, and God uh, and Gideon asks for a sign. So I'm going to read a few verses from Judges chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 14. So this is part of the story of Gideon. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. It's pretty reasonable in the, in the context of the story. And this wasn't the only time that Gideon asked for a sign. 
We don't have time to read the whole of chapter 6, but feel free to do that later at home if you want to. So Gideon asked for signs. He wasn't the only one. Moses, when he first encounters God, if you remember, speaking to him from a burning bush, God gives him this instruction. This is Exodus chapter 3. Go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So Gideon and Moses, and if we go back even further in the Bible to the story of Noah, the story of Noah ends with God giving Noah a sign. It's a sign of his promise or his covenant that never again would all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. So this is from the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the cloud, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. What about when Jesus was born? When Jesus was born, the shepherds were told by an angel. They were told this this good news that in the town of David, a saviour had been born. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And the sign that they would find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. So signs are important. And often signs are given without anyone asking for them. I can remember... um, A bit like Gideon, Um, back in 2005 it was, before we went to live in France, asking God for confirmation that this was really what he wanted us to do, to move the country, to go and live in France. And uh, and in a a way at that moment, uh, God reminded me of all the signs that he had given along the way, pointing in that direction that we should move And perhaps there are others among us who, at some point in our lives, we've asked God for a sign. A sign that it's really him speaking to us, a sign that he's there. But if we come back to Matthew chapter 12, let's see how Jesus responds to this request for a sign. So if we take verse 38 on its own, it seems quite reasonable, but this is Jesus' response. I'll read verse 39. Jesus answered... A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. How do you think the Pharisees would have felt at that moment? They've asked for a sign. Rabbi, give us a sign. Jesus said, you're not going to have any sign. You're a wicked and adulterous generation, and no sign is going to be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It would have been a shock to them, I think. 
And if we hadn't spent the last couple of weeks looking at the first part of chapter 12, this response from Jesus could seem quite harsh to us. He's basically saying no, no sign other than the sign of Jonah. But Jesus has been, as we know, dealing with opposition from the Pharisees uh, for a while now. At the beginning of chapter 12, it's all about what is lawful and unlawful. It has to do with the Sabbath. Last week with Louise, we saw that Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of of driving out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebul. So in a sense, the the discussion has moved from what is lawful or unlawful about the Sabbath to what is good and evil. And Jesus makes it clear that it's by the Spirit of God that he's driving out demons. And then he talks about the consequence of people who are speaking against the Holy Spirit. And he gives the example of good and bad trees with good and bad fruit. And in fact, talking about trees and fruit has come up quite often in Matthew's Gospel. The first time was in chapter 3, where it's John the Baptist talking about trees and good fruit. And then in chapter 7, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about trees and fruit. So this is, this is a, a repeated theme in Matthew's Gospel. And I don't know if we're used to thinking in these terms, but Jesus makes it clear that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the opposite is true of an evil man. And everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment, and our words will either acquit us and we'll be free, or they will condemn us. And that's, that's something we need to think about, isn't it? Our words will acquit us or condemn us, is what Jesus says. Tells us that what, what we say matters. And Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that if we, if we declare with our mouth, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead then we will be saved. And we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Romans together in a lot more detail after Easter. But back to Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus is having to tell them in no uncertain terms because of the danger that they're in, the danger of rejecting him. And when he says to them that they are part of a wicked and adulterous generation, that's aimed to kind of shock them into their senses. A wicked and adulterous generation. The word used for evil and the word used for wicked in this chapter is the same word. So it's a, an evil generation, an adulterous generation when he's speaking to the Pharisees. And it's a word that Jesus uses, back in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the word evil ten times. And Matthew, in this gospel, uses it 28 times, a lot more than the other gospels. So this is something that's at the heart of what Jesus is trying to get across. And Jesus, if you look back to verse 34, Jesus has already said, 
that these people, the Pharisees, are evil. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? And he's right about them, isn't he? They're plotting how they might kill him. They are evil people. There's no two ways about it. So Jesus is not pulling any punches. And as we go on, we can ask the question, what else is he saying to shock the Pharisees? At the beginning of of chapter 12, he's already told them that they're condemning the innocent by applying their excessive rules about the Sabbath. And here, Jesus tells them that not only will they be condemned by their words, that's verse 37, by your words you will be condemned, but that at the judgment they will be condemned by the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south. So here Jesus is picking up on two other stories from the Old Testament. The story of Jonah, which is a whole book, which we we probably know well. And the time when the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, goes to visit Solomon. So the men of Nineveh are not... They're not Israelites. The queen of Sheba wasn't an Israelite. These are outsiders. These are foreigners. And Jesus is saying to the very religious, holy Pharisees that they are going to be condemned on the day of judgment by these non-believers. And that would have shocked them to their, to their core. This is, this is Jesus trying to, to jolt them awake. I think, like when our alarm goes off in the morning and we're, and we're brought to, to awakeness suddenly, or if we're driving down the road and there's a, an ambulance that suddenly appears behind us with the siren going, or if the fire alarm goes off in the building, all of these things we're not expecting and they jolt us awake, and that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do here. We probably know that the, the story of Jonah is a, is a shocking story. It involves God choosing a man, a prophet, to deliver a message to, to his enemies. And his first reaction is to run away. And then God has to bring him back via a, a ship on which he sails. And he ends up in, in the belly of a large fish, which is exactly what Jesus brings to us here. But it's a shocking story. It's a shocking story not only because Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, but that the men of Nineveh turn back to God. Well, they turn to God. I don't know if they had any relationship with God before, but that is the big... And Jonah doesn't like it. Jonah is shocked by it. It's a shocking story. And let me just read from 1 Kings chapter 10 a little bit of the story of the Queen of the South coming to visit Solomon. So this is 1 Kings 10 verse 6. So the Queen of Sheba, I think we we probably have the sense this is someone very important coming to visit Solomon at the height of his powers. And she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. 
In wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And this is the bit. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel and has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. That was her conclusion in visiting Solomon and seeing what God had done through Solomon. And the story about Solomon doesn't end well, but here at this point, she sees something and she praises God. And that's not an unexpected thing. It's another shock. This is why Jesus is mentioning these things. And then what comes next? What's the next uh, shocking image in Matthew chapter 12? Turn to it. The next thing we have is an image of the person who has been set free from an impure spirit, an unclean spirit. And remember that Jesus has just healed a man who was demon-possessed and blind and mute and has made him well. So imagine such a person having been cleansed, suddenly being repossessed by the same spirit. And seven other spirits more evil, that same word again, than itself. So it's a warning to the Pharisees. It's a warning to those who were so concerned about cleanliness, outward cleanliness, holiness, things being in order, just like this person whose house was put in order. But Jesus makes it clear that the final condition of such a person will be much worse than the first. And he says that is how it will be with this wicked generation. So it's shock after shock after shock, and Jesus, like an alarm going off, is trying to bring them to their senses And the chapter finishes as it began, with a focus on Jesus' disciples. They're mentioned right at the beginning of the chapter. They're mentioned right at the end of the chapter. In the middle of the chapter, they're still around. They just don't get mentioned. Remember, Jesus is still saying things to shock and to awaken people to a a reality that they don't realize. And here it has to do with who Jesus considers to be his family. Who is it that Jesus has his eyes on and his focus on and whom he considers to be his mother and brother and sisters? The answer is in the very last verse of the chapter, verse 50. Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And the ones who are doing the will of God, they're the disciples. The ones that at the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees are criticizing for picking corn and eating it on the Sabbath. They're the ones who are doing the will of Jesus' Father in heaven. So what are they doing that is the will of God? 
simply following Jesus. And there we have the contrast between the Pharisees and the disciples. The disciples matter a lot to Jesus, but the Pharisees too. He's not prepared to let the Pharisees just drift off into a lost eternity. Jesus takes the time to rise to the challenge that they bring and to debate with them and to argue with them and to teach them and to try and help them to see who he is. And perhaps just to finish, we can ask the question, what about us? What are we doing today that is the will of our Father in heaven? And it's a serious question. What is it that we do that is the will of God? There's an echo of of the Lord's Prayer in that question. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven? How does that happen? Where do we see that? Where is the will of God done? Where are we following Jesus as his first disciples did in doing the will of God? So that's a question that we can wrestle with in house groups and in while well, we're having coffee later on. Final thing I wanted to say was that the sign of Jonah, the sign that Jesus said would be the sign to convince people that he was who he said he was. We're spending three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, just as Jonah had spent that time in the heart of the fish. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that is the sign that he is who he says he is. And that's the biggest shock, isn't it? No one expected that. The Pharisees didn't expect that. The Romans who had crucified Jesus didn't expect that. The disciples didn't expect that. It is the biggest shock that we need to be awakened to. And in our first hymn we sang, didn't we? In our first hymn we sang, Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. So let's be awake. Let's think about what it means to do the will of God. As Louise was saying last week, let's think about those like the Pharisees who can't see who Jesus is and pray for those people. Let's be involved in God's kingdom together for the glory and praise of Jesus.